0: Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you're about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. This morning we're looking once again at our passage from Matthew chapter 26, the Last uh, Supper. And so we will read together Matthew 26, verse 19 through 28. These are the words of God. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When evening had come, he sat down with the twelve. Now as they were eating, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were exceedingly sorrowful, and each of them began to say to him, Lord, is it I? And he answered and said, He who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. The Son of Man indeed goes, just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? He said to him, You have said it. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Our God and Father, open your word to us now. Give us this legacy, give us this richness, give us now this food, that we would see, that we would understand, that we would believe, That we would be strengthened to serve you and glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we have seen, Matthew highlights two very significant things during the Last Supper. One, of course, is obvious, and that is Jesus' institution of the Lord's Supper. But the other one uh, he gives equal billing to, and that is Jesus' announcement that one of them is going to betray him that all of this is according to the sovereignty of God, uh, that it is better for the man who is going to betray him if he had never been born, and that he confirms to Judas that he knows that it is him. And so we have deep things here that Jesus wants us to contemplate, and that's why it's featured this way. And so we've begun to look at this whole deep topic of the sovereignty of God, salvation, and damnation. And last week we looked at the sovereignty of God and freedom of man. The sovereignty of God and events of life in general. And we saw that the sovereignty of God and freedom and dignity of man are not enemies. In fact, if God is not sovereign, man is not free. Today we want to look at the sovereignty of God and salvation. We want to take it in an even more personal direction. And next week we're going to look at salvation and God's covenant, salvation and the covenant of God. And in doing so, we're going to look particularly at the problem that we see here with Judas, which is the problem of apostasy, and how does that fit? How does that fit with the sovereignty of God? How does that fit with the assurance of salvation? But We have to work our way there, and again, today we will look at the sovereignty of God and salvation. The first thing we need to see is that salvation is a solution to a problem. If you want to understand any solution, you have to understand the problem it's solving. And when it comes to salvation, the problem that is being solved is summed up in the theological phrase, total depravity. That's the shortest phrase that describes the problem that... God is solving through salvation. Now what is total depravity? Well, total depravity is what lies behind Jesus' proclamation in John six sixty-five that no one can come to him unless it has been granted them by the Father. Total depravity is what lies behind that statement by Jesus. And so I want to look a little bit at what total depravity does not mean and what it does mean. First, what total depravity does not mean. It does not mean that man is as wicked as he could be. Not even Hitler was as wicked as he could have been. Total depravity means that man's fall into sin has affected every part of him. There is no part of man that is not touched and brought under the bondage of sin. It's affected man's desires, what he wants, what he longs for. It's affected man's will, what he chooses. And it's affected man's mind and his intellect. So that every part of man is in bondage to sin. In Romans 7.14, Paul says, The law of God is spiritual, but I am sold in bondage to sin. Therefore, as an unconverted Jew, Paul, thinking back to his previous life, he said he knew the law of God, he understood the law of God, but he was powerless to do it. I see in my member, says Paul, a law or a reigning power, waging war and making me captive to the law of sin. Nothing good dwells in me, says Paul. Only the power of the Holy Spirit, which Paul calls the spirit of life, can set one free from the law of sin and death. That is Romans 8.2. So that's what depravity means. Man's fall into sin has affected every part of him. Third, the heart or the essence of total depravity, if we want to get to the very root of it, the heart or essence of total depravity is not any particular form of sin, whether cruelty or debauchery or violence. The heart of total depravity is simply a personal antipathy toward God. So that we want to live independently and autonomously from Him. Paul says in Romans 8 that the carnal mind, that is the mind that does not have the Holy Spirit, is enmity against God. In other words, it is hostile to God. It is opposed to God. It has the orientation and attitude of an enemy. Elsewhere in Romans says, Paul says that it was when we were enemies of God that He saved us. Fourth, as a result, fallen man does not want to acknowledge God or thank him or worship him. Paul says that fallen man, even though he knew God, even though everybody, even the most confirmed atheists at base, down deep, they know God. They know that he is. They know that he's divine. They know that he's eternal in his power. They know that he's not part of the creation. They know that he's the creator God. But Paul says that even though man knew God, he did not honor him as God or give thanks. Romans 1.21 As a result, fallen man suppresses the truth about God. Fallen man pretends God does not exist or else changes him into a God that suits fallen man. So fallen man is incapable of being intellectually honest when it comes to the most important question of all, where did we come from? Where did we come from? Fallen man is incapable of answering that question honestly and looking at the evidence honestly. Professing to be wise, they became fools, Paul says, and they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image in the, man, in the likeness of corruptible man or some aspect of the creation. Fallen man may be religious, he may worship a God, he may worship many gods, but they will all be gods that he makes according to his own uh, liking. He will not be the true and living God. Number six, total depravity means that fallen man is willfully disoriented toward God, who is the wellspring of all life. And that makes him disoriented toward life. Because fallen man is disoriented toward God, who is the wellspring of all of life, fallen man is disoriented toward life itself. It is hard to get truth right when you're bound to suppress the most fundamental truth of all. It's hard to get love right when you're bound not to love the one who is love. When we don't love God, we can't love others or even ourselves as we should. We can't get truth right and we can't get love right and then life begins to unravel. And every form of evil, great and small, proceeds from our initial antipathy toward God. Paul says in Titus 3.3, We ourselves were once foolish And disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Number seven, total depravity also means that fallen man has no desire to change his orientation toward God. He has no desire to change his orientation toward God, and accordingly, he is incapable of doing so. Jeremiah 13, verse 23, God asks this question, Can the Ethiopian change his skin, or the leopard change his spots? Then you also can do good. We have the same ability to change our desires and our orientation toward God as the leopard has to change its spots. Number eight total depravity means that fallen man's attitude of hostility and autonomy toward God is in sync with Satan's fundamental attitude toward God and that makes fallen man an easy target for manipulation by Satan Paul says the unbeliever is ensnared by the devil and held captive by him to do his will 2nd Timothy 2 25 and 26 but this captivity of a fallen man is a Stockholm Syndrome type of captivity in which the captor sympathizes with the one who has taken him captive and even shares his desires. As Jesus told the Jewish leaders who wanted to kill him in John eight forty four, you are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. Number nine total depravity means that man's will, that fallen man's will is in bondage. Total depravity means that fallen man's will is in bondage. Now this gets us into the whole debate about free will, which is a debate that goes on and on and on because people are confused about the terms. Terms like free will or bondage of the will often lead to a lot of confusion because most people conceive of freedom differently than the Bible does. Now listen to this. This will help you. Most people conceive of freedom differently than the Bible does. To the person on the street, freedom is the right to choose what they please. Okay? To the man on the street, freedom is the right to choose what they please. In the, Bidom, in the Bible, freedom is the power to choose what you should you see the difference the man on the street freedom is the right to choose what he wants in the bible freedom is the power to choose what you should So, does fallen man have free will yes and no depending how you define free fallen man has free will in the sense that he is a free agent that is he makes his own decisions for his own reasons. However, fallen man likes free will in the sense that the Bible talks about freedom. He lacks the power to choose what he should. Specifically, fallen man lacks the power to overcome his enmity against God, to love and to desire God, and therefore to come to Christ and to be saved. Now, this is what Martin Luther meant when he wrote his book called The Bondage of the Will. This is what he was talking about when he said man's will's not free. He's not saying that man's a puppet. He's not saying people don't make their own decisions for their own reasons. He's saying that man lacks freedom in the biblical sense. He ha- lacks the power to choose what he should. Okay? And this is what the Bible calls being dead in sin. Being dead in sin, okay? If you have a dead battery in your car, you can turn the key all you want. It doesn't have the power to respond. It doesn't have the power to respond, all right? Now, if you have a dead battery in your car, and you've tried it and tried it, and you're getting nothing, and then you go inside for a while, and you think, I'm going to try it one more time. You go back out, and you try it, and it fires off like a champion, what that tells you is somebody's been tinkering around under the hood. Somebody has regenerated your battery. Right? And that's the same way when it comes to people. We are dead in trespasses and sins. We don't have the power to respond to God. We don't have the power to want to respond to God. And to change that, God has to regenerate us. Now the upshot of total depravity is just this. If we're going to have a solution to this problem, if we're going to be delivered from our bondage to sin, to death, and to Satan, it must be of God from first to last. Remember, salvation is a remedy, and total depravity is the problem. Any solution that does not deal with the actual problem is not a solution at all. So our solution, our salvation, must deal with the problem that we're totally depraved and therefore totally helpless. Our salvation must be a salvation to which we do not contribute, for we are incapable of contributing. God is going to have to do it from A to Z. And so that is the next thing we see with salvation. Salvation is of God from first to last. Let's look at the different ways the Bible tells us that is true. Number one, it is of God that we come to Christ. Again, John six forty four, Jesus said, no one can come to me. He's not saying they're being prevented. He's not saying the choice of coming to Him is not available to people. He's saying they don't have the ability. It's not an availability problem. It's an ability problem. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. The word for draw there is the word that would be used if you drew a sword out of its sheath. There's resistance. You're pulling against something. And that's just exactly what God has to do to bring us to Christ. Number two, it is of God that we have faith to believe. Ephesians 2.8 You have been saved through, through faith... And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Faith is the gift of God. Number three. It is of God that we receive the word of God as the word of God. 1 Thessalonians 2.13. Paul says, we thank God because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. Number four. It is of God that we receive the gospel as good news. The gospel is good news. That's what gospel means. But it's of God that we receive the good news as good news. In Acts 13:48, it says, When the Gentiles heard this, the gospel that is, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Why is it that way? Well, because Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man, that is the man apart from the Holy Spirit, can't receive the things of the Spirit of God because they're foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Number five, it is of God that we're convicted of our sins. In John chapter 16, verse 8, Jesus says it is the Holy Spirit who will convict the world of sin. Apart from the Holy Spirit, we're not convicted of sin. Number six, it is of God that we want to turn from our sins unto God, and it is of God that we do so. It's of God that we want to turn from our sins unto God, and it's of God that we do so. In 2 Timothy 2.25, Paul says that uh, in dealing with unbelievers, he tells Timothy, you always have to remember that this is a spiritual battle and that what you're dealing with here is a hope and the prayer that God is going to grant them repentance and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil. Number seven. All of this that we've been talking about so far, that is coming to Christ, coming, having faith to believe, of wanting to turn from our sins, being convicted of our sins, wanting to turn to Christ. All of that is what the Bible calls being born again. And the Greek word for again there, it's, a, it's an interesting word. It can mean again or it can mean from above. Born again, born from above. And you can see how those two meanings would go together. Jesus says you have to be born again from above. It's a, it's a birth from heaven. It's a birth of the Spirit. And it is of God that we are born again from above. As Peter says in 1 Peter 1.3, The Father has caused us to be born again. The Father has caused us to be born again. Number eight, it is also of God that we persevere in the faith. That means we keep believing. We keep trusting. We keep walking with God in the face of hardship and difficulty We keep doing it over the course of our lifetime. If we persevere in faith, it is solely because God perseveres with us. What we need to realize is that apart from God persevering with us, none of us would persevere. We would all turn away at one point or another, just as we see Judas doing. We may not have done it, we may not do it as dramatically or as in a wicked way as he did but we would all turn away at one point or another. And it's important that we realize that perseverance is necessary for salvation. It's necessary for salvation. Jesus, in his message to the seven churches in Asia Minor, you'll find those in Revelation chapter 2 uh, through 3. Um, he has a special word to all seven of these churches because they're about to undergo a great deal of hardship and persecution. And his bottom line message to each one of them is to overcome. And that's his word for persevere. It means overcoming hardship, overcoming persevere, uh, persecution. That's his word for persevering. Every single one of them, he tells them to overcome. Every single one of them, he holds forth promises for what they will receive if they do overcome or persevere. Here are some of the things that Jesus promised to them and that he promises to you. If you overcome, if you persevere in the faith, listen to these to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God, to not be hurt by the second death, which refers to hell, to eat of the hidden manna, to receive a new name, to be given power over the nations, to be clothed in white garments, which in Scripture is often used as a picture of being clothed in righteousness. To not have one name, one's name blotted out from the book of life, which is an interesting concept, which we will talk about, more about next week. To have one's name confessed by Jesus before the Father. To be made a pillar in the temple of God and to go out no more. To have written upon one the name of God, the name of the city of God, the new Jerusalem, and the name of Jesus, Lord. And finally, to sit with Jesus on his throne, all of these things are promised to those who overcome. That is, to those who persevere. Now, we've already seen that we persevere only because God perseveres with us. What is the means by which God causes us to persevere? It is faith. Faith is the means. Faith is the tool which God uses to protect us and to keep us for salvation. In in First Peter one five. Peter says, we are, listen to the language, we are kept by the power of God. Why do you persevere? Because you're kept, you're held by the power of God. Okay, well, how, do, how does that happen? We are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation. So faith is the hand that God's mighty arm uses to hold us and protect us. Faith is is the hand that God's mighty arm uses to hold us and to protect us. Okay. And this brings us then to the concept of election or foreordination unto eternal life. Again, all of salvation is a solution. You can't understand the solution if you don't understand the problem. So what drives everything, including the doctrine of election or foreordination, and I understand when you hear those kind of words, it's kind of like free will. Everybody tends to tense up. Like, well, what does that mean? Total depravity is what lies behind the doctrine of election or the doctrine of for nation unto eternal life. Total depravity, our inability, our total helplessness, is what makes election a doctrine of love and a doctrine of wonder. With the benefit of true perspective, something that we lack, but the angels have it. And the saints who have gone before us, the saints who are in heaven, they have true perspective now. They see everything really as it is. And when they look at all of life, as it is playing out, they don't wonder, how could God send anybody to hell? What they wonder is, how could God save anybody? What they wonder is, why didn't God just send the whole world to hell from the get go when Adam and Eve sinned? What they wonder is, why? Why would God? Why would God give His only beloved Son? Why would Jesus give Himself on the cross? Why would the Father and the Son give the Spirit? Why would the Spirit put up with all of our sin? even after we're saved, all of our stubbornness, all of the games we play, all the games we play with God's word, all the little games we play with the spirit, all the things we do to grieve the spirit. Why would God do all of this? To save those who are bound and determined to be his enemies, who are bound and determined to say, we don't want you, we don't like you, we don't want you to exist, we want you to go away. If I need your help, I'll ask. I want you to leave me alone. I want you to get out of my life because I know a lot more about my happiness than you do. Go away. Why would God save? Well, what we come to see is not only does God save, but if he doesn't choose, if he doesn't set his love upon sinners, if he doesn't decree that they will come to Christ, that they're going to persevere in the faith, that they're going to be eternally saved, no one would be saved. You see, when we hear the word election, we tend to get the picture that God the Father is standing in front of Jesus kicking sinners away. You can't come. You can't come. You can't come. Oh, okay, you can come. That's not what's going on. Election does not mean God is kicking people away from Christ because He didn't choose them. Election means God compels people to come to Christ and persevere in the face because He did choose them. Now, When the Bible talks about this concept of choosing or election, it speaks in terms of foreknowledge and predestination, foreknowledge and predestination. Those are the words that Paul uses in Romans chapter 8, for whom God foreknew He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. So we need to talk about these concepts, foreknowledge and predestination. Again, these are big theological words, and we tend to kind of get uptight about them. But we need to realize that Paul uses these words, foreknowledge and predestination, to explain to us probably the best known and most beloved promise in all of Scripture. That God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. Romans 8.28. The very next verse, Romans 8.29, Paul is explaining how and why this works. He says, for whom God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. This is the why. This is the how God causes everything in the world, in detail, in particular, to work for good all the time, 24-7, to those who love him. Now, let's talk about these concepts of foreknowledge and predestination. When we hear foreknowledge... We tend to think of it as a passive activity. We think of it as a soothsayer or some other mystic looking into the future and seeing events that are going to happen. It's a passive concept. God's foreknowledge is an active concept. And notice here, it's not related to seeing events that are going to happen. God's foreknowledge here is related to people. Whom God foreknew. Paul says, whom he foreknew, right? Those he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So this refers to God knowing people before. That's what foreknowledge means, knowing people before. And then predestinating an outcome of history. And predestinating all the details of history so that that outcome, that they will be glorified together with Jesus is achieved, and in the meantime, everything that happens is for their good. Now, in the Bible, knowing is used to refer to intimate love and involvement, not just cognizance. It's used to refer to intimate love and involvement. The Bible refers to the sexual union between husband and wife as knowing. Genesis 4.1, Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. Luke 1.34, the angel Gabriel tells the Virgin Mary she's going to conceive and bear a son. She responds, how can this be since I do not know a man? She's not saying she doesn't know any guys. She's saying, I have not had the intimate love and involvement with a man that produces pregnancy. So God's foreknowing someone means that he has set his intimate love upon them and that he is involved in every detail of their life for good. And this is all before. Before what? Well, before they were born. Indeed, before the world was made. Listen to Paul in Ephesians 1. God the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. Having predestined us to adoption as sons By Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. So here's what we're left with. If God doesn't foreknow, no one is saved. If God doesn't choose, no one is saved. If God doesn't predestine, no one is saved. God has to do all of that before we ever get to calling and justification. Whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Then whom He predestined, these He called, He drew them to Jesus Christ. And whom He called, these He also justified. He pronounced them and declared them righteous in Christ. And whom He justified, these He also glorified. Now notice the one-to-one ratio throughout that order of salvation. Those who are glorified in the end are precisely those whom God foreknew in the beginning. There is not one whom God foreknew and set his love on before the foundation of the world who does not end up glorified with Christ in the end. And Paul concludes this passage by saying the conclusion nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Why? Because it's of God from first to last. He has laid hold on us. He knew you before anything was created. He knew you. What does this mean? It means that salvation is intensely personal. And if you want to know the truth, you know, you've probably heard of Calvinism, kind of a bad word in a lot of circles. That's what Calvinism what I've been telling you today that is really what Calvinism is what it's really about is the personalness of salvation what this means is Jesus when he died did not die from some nameless faceless group of people a hypothetical group of people he does he died for real people What it means is that when Jesus died, he knew your name. That's what it means. Salvation is personal from first to last. And it's of God from first to last. So what is the application for us today? Well, Paul gives us the application in Romans 12 verses one and two. He says, therefore, in light of the mercies of God, and that's what we're talking about, just the mercies of God. There's no reason that we can come up with to justify this. This is who God is. This is who he is. God is a savior. God saves. Why did God allow evil? We don't know. But one thing we do know is that we would never know the depths of God's love if he didn't. We would never know the depths of God's love. If he didn't send his son and give his son to save us. If he didn't have to draw us and save us all of himself. But in light of that, Paul says, basically, present yourself a living sacrifice. In other words, give your whole self to God. God has given his whole self to you. I want you to think about that. God has given his whole self to you. He has held nothing back. The Father has given His Son to you, His whole Son. He's given Him to you. Jesus has given Himself to you, all of Himself, to you. The Father and the Son have given you the Spirit to dwell in you. The Spirit gives you His whole self. And through the Son and the Spirit you have the Father. God has given you His whole... God has held nothing back from you. Okay? Okay? Paul says the end of salvation is that we should be filled up with all the fullness of God. So if God has not held anything back from you, give your whole self to God. Don't hold anything back from him. What are you waiting for? What do you think you're going to gain by holding something back? You think you're going to be better off by staying in charge of this area or that area or the other area? Do you still not trust God's love after all of this? Do you still not trust his wisdom after all of this? Or his power after all of this? He's given you everything. There's nothing else he can give you. Give your whole self to God. Don't hold anything back. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.